Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. I was told not to hit it too hard. I have, I'm very strong. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I am Anne-Marie Grassi, founder and CEO of Open Doors Academy. We provide after-school enrichment to over 600 students every year across Greater Cleveland, and we are so grateful to be involved in today's program. As we hear from the Director of Instructional Advancement and Educational Policy and the National Director of the Education Policy Fellowship Program, at the Institute for Educational Leadership, Dr. Helen Jank Malone. As the school year draws to a close, it's appropriate that we're here today to talk about out-of-school time, an emerging field in education and education research that encompasses the creation, execution, and analysis of after-school and summer learning opportunities. In the United States, more than 10 million young people participate in these programs every year. Out-of-school programs are just as important to students' overall academic, emotional, and psychosocial development as time spent inside the classroom. Research has shown that those who participate regularly in these programs do better academically and have higher high school graduation rates, are less involved in risky activities, and are healthier overall. However, the students who benefit most from these activities, those who live in high poverty areas or who have emigrated from other countries, and those who come from single parent homes and are in foster care systems, often don't have access. Today's speaker, in addition to her scholarly pursuits on the topic, comes with a unique personal experience. Dr. Jank Malone and her family escaped worn, torn, Yugoslavia and came to the United States when she was an adolescent. Knowing very little English, she was enrolled in an English for Speakers of Other Languages class and an after-school program, the Student Government Association, two activities that she now considers sanctuaries that helped her learn English and gain self-confidence. After sharing these experiences as an immigrant and self-proclaimed dictionary girl in a Peace for Education Week in 2012, her English Serbo-Croatian dictionary was included as part of the permanent education collection of the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. Dr. Jank Malone joined the Institute for Educational Leadership, an organization dedicated to equipping leaders to better prepare children and youth for college, careers, and citizenship. In her position, she is focused on continuing to grow the Institute as a premier voice on cross-boundary leadership. She holds a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Political Science from Townsend University, a Master's degree in Education Policy and Leadership from the University of Maryland, and a Doctor of Education from Harvard University's Graduate School of Education. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Dr. Helen Jank Malone.
afternoon. Thank you for inviting me to your lovely city, uh, to this distinguished institution. Um, I'm privileged to be here today at the City Club of Cleveland and the history that you have of debating and discussing salient issues both in education but also in public policy and, and relevant topics to your communities, to your schools, um, and to your neighborhoods. Um, I would like to thank the City Club for this kind invitation, and I also like to thank uh, Debbie Moran, Dr. Moran from, um, from Cleveland State University, whose leadership has really transformed educators um, in public education on school and district and regional levels. So I also want to acknowledge her leadership. She's also a coordinator of our Ohio Education Policy Fellowship Program, a national fellowship that has been transforming, inspiring education leaders uh, for over half a century. Um, and so there are many fellows and alums in this room, so I do encourage those of you who are not fellows and alums to touch base with this distinguished leaders uh, amongst you and learn more about that. And I will be reminiscent if I also did not mention that our Institute for Educational Leadership um, We'll be hosting a family community engagement conference here in Cleveland, July 11th to 13th, focusing on how do we strengthen school family community partnerships at your convention center. So I do encourage you to come and join that conversation as well. So as it was noted in introductions, now is the prime time, despite the semi-gloomy weather outside, to discuss summer learning and after-school programming. And um, as you're thinking about summer camps and after school, just to gauge the room, how many of you are currently working in after school and summer learning programs in some way? Oh, excellent. And how many of you are partnering with after school or summer providers? Fantastic. So room full of, well, so I'm going to be preaching to the choir. <laughs> so, um, I want to really talk today about the power of after school and summer learning, which I will talk uh, as out of school time, and you'll hear me use the term OST as well for short. Uh, my talk will be structured about defining the field, uh, talking about the current state of the field, as well as some of the debates that we have both within the field and outside, and focusing on some future directions and opportunities, and I look forward to discussion in the Q&A session. So the today's talk uh, is sort of a combination both of my work in building research and practitioner networks, um, in my own research and evaluation of out-of-school time field, as well as the work that we do for the Institute for Educational Leadership, which we do around school family community partnerships, community schools, and also um, transition age youth, um, as well as uh, the anthology that you saw, uh, which is our uh, newest book on the growing out-of-school time field. It's a book that is really a, a partnership with 29 scholars and practitioners and intermediary uh, organizational leaders, they're really taking stock of where the field has been over the last 20 years and where it's evolving in terms of where we're headed as the um, field of after school and summer learning. So let me stop, uh, start off by talking a little bit about how do we define that out of school time field. So out of school time field is not a monolithic concept, it's really anytime and anywhere learning. So when we talk about after school and summer, what we're really talking about is uh, really context-based and youth-driven programs. They're really embedded into the needs and, and um, uh, supports of the youth and the communities that they serve. So they're inclusive of tutoring and homework assistance, but they're also your athletics and your sports and student government in the school context. 
but they're also inclusive of pre-apprenticeships and internships and summer camps. So they really cross a lot of different contexts and topics. They take place in schools that can be taught by teachers or paraprofessionals or volunteers, but they can also take place in your local libraries and museums and businesses, your Y's, your uh, uh, United Ways and Boys and Girls Clubs. And so it, the field is really diverse, both in terms of the context and the place where it takes um, but the where and when is only a piece of this. And what I hope that I also impart during this talk is also that uh, understanding that out of school time, the after school summer, is also a learning and a development strategy. Not only a place of custodial care uh, or only a place where we're focusing on fun activities for the sake of um, engaging youth in the one particular activity. It's really part of a broader construct of how we develop in a positive way our children and youth and how we really engage them in learning with a very broader definition of what learning is. So let me talk briefly about the demands of the field. So this was also mentioned in the introduction. So this is borrowing from After School Alliance, so which is one of the leading advocacy uh, organizations nationally really works to preserve uh, fun federal funding dedicated to after school summer programs, but also to raise the visibility of the needs and opportunities within this field. And so, as mentioned in their after school three uh, America after three p.m. survey, they mentioned that 10.2 million students are currently in the after school programs across the country. And for every one that's in after school programs, two more are waiting to um, enter and to have that opportunity. 89% of families, according to their latest survey, are overall satisfied with the quality and safety and engagement and critical thinking of their children and what they have received in those programming um, components. And 84% of the survey parents do support federal um, public funding for out-of-school time program. Here in Ohio, through Ohio After School Network, anybody here from the Ohio After School Network? No, it's a great resource for you to tap. Um, it's a statewide uh, network designed to really support after-school and summer learning. So their data shows that in the uh, state of Ohio, nearly 850,000 students would participate in after-school programming if one was available to them. Currently, 15% uh, participate in after-school programs, but 23% of students remain not supervised, not having access to out-of-school time opportunities. And Ohio is in some ways above average in the sense for every one child that is part of after school program is there's three who are waiting for such an opportunity but they, due to lack of resources and um, placements, they're not able to access such uh, learning and development opportunities. The other piece that I wanted to provide in terms of the context is the overall growth of the field itself. Oftentimes when we think about educational change and educational reform, we focus on what's happening in the context of schooling and school in a very traditional, formal environment. But there's this non-formal learning component that's critically um, important as a partner to our schooling and our formal education. That is the out-of-school field. And the out-of-school field has grown tremendously over the last two decades. So it's important to also know how that field has grown because we, do, uh, we know a lot more today than we did even two decades ago um, that has really now become a driver for the good practices that we see across the country and also more so reason why it's important to partner with after school and summer programs as a critical partner in education. 
So I will first refer you to two anthologies in addition to one that, um, I was, uh, uh, that I pulled together this fall with 29 wonderful scholars and practitioners. There's one that was published in 2002. It's called Community Programs to Promote Youth Development by Jackie Eccles that was part of the National Research Council Committee on Community-Level Programs for Youth. And we affectionately in the field call it the Blue Book, not to be confused with Kelly's blue book. Um, but it, and so that really sets the ground in terms of what do we know and what we don't know about high quality uh, after school and summer programs. The other anthology that was published in 2013 is from Terry Peterson, and that was also a grouping of wonderful scholars and practitioners and intermediaries to talk about, so where are we today as in 2013? It's called Expanding Minds and Opportunities. So I do encourage you, if you're interested in sort of where we are and how far we've come, those are kind of two anchors, and then um, the one we recently published at Brian, growing the out-of-school time field. So the field has grown in several ways. One is that it has been very intentional about public and private investments. And one of those investments has really been within the, um, and I'll highlight this particular funder, but the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation has partnered both with the Department of Education around 21st century community learning centers and has for decades um, invested heavily into after school and summer programs. And there are many other philanthropies across the country who have invested into supporting both evaluation and research and practice. So as a result, a lot of these both public and private investment on local, state, and federal levels, we now actually have a good sense of what does it mean to have a quality program. We have standards, we have networks, we have advocacy. There's a lot more organization um, to the field. Um, and so after school and summer are now seen as powerful partners uh, to education, to community development, to career, to college pathways, positive development, and also to health outcomes. So I'll mention in particular, I'll say uh, several core lessons that we have learned over the last 20 years. The first thing we have learned, what does it mean to have a quality program? And how to calibrate the dosage of activities, meaning the balance between intensity, the amount of time in the activity, as well as the frequency duration, and the length of time in an activity, as well as the importance of engagement. So what we have learned is that quality programs, some of the common pieces they have, is that youth are attending it regularly, they're engaging spaces, they're safe spaces, their sense of agency um, is really valued, um, there's a sense of ownership in young person's learning, and there is this, because of this engagement and safe space, that there's an opportunity to, oh my goodness. <laughs> Uh, there's an opportunity to build their skills and knowledge. The other piece is that in terms of the high quality programs, um, we know now that it's not enough to say we have this custodial function and the safety function. That what's really driving youth and keeping youth, one of the um, adages of the out-of-school times, the youth will with their feet because it's often fee-based and often voluntary. And so what really keeps youth engaged is that sense of relevance, sense of belonging, ability to build trusting relationships peer-to-peer -peer and peer-to-adult. The other piece, in addition to knowing what is it about the quality standards of programs, is that we also now know, uh, because we're starting to do a lot more evaluations, on the practitioner level and also on the programmatic level. And so that has been real, uh, very helpful to know not only what the youth need, 
in the context of the program, but how do we build adult capacity of our youth serving professionals? And so now all 50 states have quality standards for after school. And if you go to the Ohio After School Network, you will see that there are quality guidelines for the after school programs here in the state that cover a range of topics, including programming, interpersonal relationships, professionalism, environment, health and safety, and administrative practices. So as a field, now there's a sense of we know why after school and summer matter. We know what we mean when we say high quality. What do we mean by engagement? How do we prepare our youth serving professionals um, to engage in high quality instructional practices? And we're also seeing this by uh, an increasing number of both two and four year institutions. They're now actually creating majors and certifications and master degrees in youth development which we haven't seen before. They were in pockets, but we're now seeing really uh, a much more an investment to see this as really a profession and an important piece of the growth of young people. The third piece I want to draw attention to is that we also learned that summer learning really matters. And since most of you are in this field, I'm sure you're familiar with Carl Alexander's study from Johns Hopkins. Uh, he and his colleagues started in 1982 a beginning school study, which is longitudinally tracking 790 students across 20 Baltimore public schools. And what they found is that there were huge disparities uh, based on the socioeconomic factors. And so they did a battery of reading tests that they administer each year. And so by the age nine, there was a difference of 73 points between low-income students and middle-class students. And by high school, that has grown to 116 points. And what they found was that the, the link, one of the uh, causes was the summer loss. And that's where the word summer learning loss and the faucet theory come from. This idea that faucet of learning is turned off during the summer, and especially for our youth from low-income and high-concentration uh, poverty communities. They don't have access to the enrichment. They don't have access to summer camps. They don't have access to um, accelerated programs. So when they come back in, in September, they're not on equal footing compared to their peers who have access to that. Uh, Greg Duncan and Richard Mornane out of Harvard did a, a study in, in a book called Wither Opportunity in 2014. And they found that in one year's time, uh, families, high income families spend $9,000 on enrichment activities compared to $1,300 from low income families. Obviously, a function of that is access and whether some of the activities are supplemented in terms of fees. But the big part of this is the opportunity gap, and the lack of resources and opportunities to actually even access such learning uh, in their communities and beyond. The, the fourth piece that we have learned from our field is that the field has now started to organize in more direct ways. And the Ohio After School Network is the one example, and this is also happening in cities and municipalities across the country, is that after school and summer programs are now working together and creating a network to share best practices, to build quality, to engage in professional development, and so forth. And they're also partnered with schools. So we also have the community schools networks, working with after school networks to really build those bridges around uh, school family community partnerships. We also have a very intentional 
advocacy on a national level uh, in form of the work that After School Alliance has done and also in October is the Lights On uh, campaign that happens every year that uh, communities across the country in, uh, in tune of thousands of events really engage to raise visibility of why after school and summer is important to child and youth development. So the fifth piece is that we have now a dedicated funding stream since the 90s, the 21st Century Community Learning Center, which is, uh, which is now over a billion dollar investment. We have other funding from both uh, Department of Labor and Health and Human Services that are provide allowable use of funding. Some are block grants, some are formula grants, and certainly under Every Student Succeed Act, or ESSA for short, there are opportunities for funding both in Title I, II, and IV, and particularly parts of A and B of Title IV, and we can get into the weeds if you want to <laughs> at some point. Um, but what we're taking stock from all of this over the last 20 years is the field has really grown, it's become more organized, and we have a lot of evidence both on the youth level, on the program level, on the system level to know what works, what doesn't, where are the gaps. Um, and we also are fully aware of the demands. But <clears throat> a couple of things to note is that out of school time is not without its challenges, of course. And there is this inherent tension, what Gil Noam from Harvard calls intermediary space. Because the after school has traditionally occupied its space in between school and between home. And so being an intermediary space has both been an advantage because it has provided the field opportunity to be agile and nimble and innovative and to engage youth through really youth-centered practice, but it has also created some tensions because being in the intermediary space means it's really a subsector to the larger sector, whether that's sector that they're answering to is health or labor and education. So there's some of those trade trade-offs when your voice is one of a subsector to something bigger um, in the at least public discourse. I think uh, just to quote here Robert Halpern, who is uh, a famous after-school scholar and historian, he wrote a famous seminal book, Making Play Work, and this is what he says about the after-school programs. He says, programs have often stood or found themselves at the intersection of ideological cross-currents in American society between the romantic and instrumental views of children between play and work, between traditions of local communities and those of the larger society, and between the view of low-income children as vulnerable and a view of them as threatening. And I believe that that continues to persist in terms of how we view the work of out-of-school time. So two illustrative examples of some of the tensions that the field continues to um, experience and debate that I would like to mention. One is the nice but not necessary argument and the one is around shared accountability and accountability to whom. So after school programs and summer camps have been around for over 140 years. So as a concept, they're not new. How many of you have been a part of an after school or summer camp at some point in your lifetime? Raise your hands. Everyone. <laughs> so it's part of our sort of institutional American childhood to be, uh, to, participate in Africa's summer programs. So we have this sort of a romantic view of looking back at times where we went on a, a boat ride or we went to a sports camp or we played in a band uh, or whatever else you've engaged in. Um, so we have this notion that this is a nice experience, but we don't as a society, as a collective, see this as a necessary experience. We certainly see it as a necessary if we're middle class or upper class, but we often don't see it as a necessary for other children, and we know what that means. 
we mean by that black and brown children, low-income children, children of immigrants and refugees. And so that has provided some of the tension when it comes to our funding um, and how do we view this space, whether this is part of our collective good investment or whether it's our private good that families who have access are able to pay, pay fees engage, and those who don't, they just don't. And so what is our then collective voice in terms of what do we, what does it take to really integrate after school and summer learning as part of the conversation? This is part of learning, it's part of development, and thus has its place in the educational discourse, and thus deserves also continuous funding and support. And we see those debates play out most recently when we had ESSA debates around our educational reauthorization, and how do we view those spaces and those uh, that funding investment, and who should res be responsible for that. Um, and part of this, and those who were with me this morning heard this in the education context, but in the after school and summer context. So one of the reasons is because children and young people are a dependent group, to kind of quote political scientists Schneider and Ingram um, and many others who have written about this, both from political science and sociology. Dependent group, meaning children and young people, do not have a vote. They can't lobby. They can't advocate. They have to rely on champions, external champions, to carry the message for them, to carry the votes, specifically if we're talking about younger children, elementary and middle school, which most of you tend to serve in the after school and summer spaces. So that's one piece. The other piece is, again, the value proposition. What is our value proposition of what does it mean to have an educated society, to engage everyone in learning? When we say all kids, do we really mean all kids? And what decisions do we make based on our definition of whose kids deserve to have access to other school time or not? The other debate that plays out in other school time field is one around accountability. So after school and summer programs have traditionally been fee-based. Families pay a fee to participate to send their children to a particular camp or a week-long or, uh, or aftercare uh, after the school. But at the same time, a lot of our summer and after school programs also receive diverse funding streams, whether it's public, private, whether that's public dollars from the local, state, municipal, or federal dollars. So there's always that tension of who are you accountable to? Is it the youth that you serve? Is it the families that pay? Or is it these different funders? And what happens with these different funders have different views of what are the outcomes that they're gonna hold you accountable to? And so how do you negotiate and navigate that space? And obviously when we talk about larger federal funding dollars to a lot of you might be um, receiving, the tension that becomes, are you then responsible for being part of a closing the achievement gap? And what if you're a soccer coach? How do you relate necessarily in the math, reading, and arithmetic piece? Or are we valuing kind of broader learning proposition where we value that it's really about closing opportunity gap and some of the positive learning outcome and sort of the so-called soft skills are equally important in developing a whole child and thus there are different outcomes and measures that we need to hold after school and summer programs responsible for. And so those are the debates that continue because in some areas, if you're talking about tutoring or homework assistance, some of those accountability measures linked to schools make sense, but in some contexts, they're actually in enrichment and engagement that we have to rethink of how we think about our accountability structures. So what does this mean in terms of future directions? 
The field has grown in a lot of positive ways. It has gained a lot of traction, a lot of momentum. We know a lot more from research and evaluation in our networks. We have standards and tools and instruments. Uh, and if you'd like to learn more, I can send you a ton of resources and links <laughs> across all of this, including a lot of great work happening right here in your state. Uh, but what does this mean? And I would argue that this is, uh, and we see this in the last section of our book, we're really focusing on what are the, some future directions for a field. We're in some ways in a pivotal point right now that we have this huge body of research and evidence for practice. And now what? How do we continue to grow in the 21st century? Um, and so one of the things that, uh, that I thought most resonated when we start to think about some of these debates is Karen Pittman, who is the executive director for the Forum of Youth Investments, she wrote a closing chapter in our book. Um, and so I'll, I'll read her quote because I think it, it helps to exemplify some of the ways that we're thinking about this growth, which is there's now ample research evidence and practice muscle that the field could use to pivot to embrace sharper, clearer criteria to describe and differentiate these programs not only based on where and when they operate, but also on what skills, behaviors, and capacities they hold themselves accountable for developing, which groups of students they, are, uh, they best support, how they create environments that support predictable growth for those populations, and how well they monitor and manage their performance. So research is needed to start to look at some of the intersectionality in terms of the youth that we serve. There's a great work by uh, Jenny Nagaoka from University of Chicago who talks about uh, starting to pay a little more attention into, in terms of young people's uh, integrated identity, agency, and competencies, and how they intersect with each other as well as how do we carve out space as those of you who are in after school and summer learning to really infuse into the conversations that we see now growing in the education discourse, specifically around social emotional learning and college and career readiness. Because these spaces to now move to the where and when have been doing this work for a really long time. And the education space in some ways can learn a lot from the work that all of you are doing in this room on the after school and summer. So how do we create those conversations in a way that's really about complementing each other versus supplementing or supplanting? And that's also a shift that we uh, need to talk about. And, and one last point I'll make is that uh, next week I'm heading to Iceland who is uh, in the middle of bridging school and what they call leisure care centers, which is the after school and summer learning. Um, and some of those debates are also present there. How do we acknowledge youth serving professionals as a profession? How do we really create partnerships, meaningful partnership between schools and after school programs? So it's not only about shared space, but also aligned goals and aligned vision as well as how do we broaden definitions of learning to be really inclusive of both formal and non-formal and informal learning because kids spend only a fraction of their time in school and spend a heck of a lot more time outside of school. So how do we really pay attention to those spaces um, as a partner? And I would say a partner not only for development and learning but also for equity because those are the spaces after school and summer that have traditionally played a role as being um, a space for opportunity, space for um, self-discovery, for engagement, for innovation, for uh, acceleration of knowledge. And I think that's the space that we need to um, grapple with more in terms of how do we make those linkages in that alignment. So I encourage you to continue to do your great work um, and know that um, the field, that you're part of a growing field 
that's being really recognized both by educators and health professionals and those in public services being a critical space. And so I look forward to um, our discussion. Thank you. And I'm just going to do this real quick. Hello uh, and good afternoon. I'm Dan Malthrop with the City Club, where we um, provide educational enrichment for adults in, during out-of-work time and also for students during out-of-school time. We are enjoying a forum with Dr. Helen Jank Malone, Director of Instructional Advancement and Education Policy and the National Director of the Education Policy Fellowship Program at the Institute for Educational Leadership. And we're about to begin the audience Q&A. May we have our first question, please? Um, I'm Kara Porter. I'm Director of Education at United Way here in Cleveland. And uh, we have so many great quality after-school programs that are available, but it's sort of a patchwork for, I think, low-income folks that are trying to access those for their, their kids. And I'm wondering if you can point to some cities that have uh, made good progress in making those programs available to everyone and what sort of investment and um, alignment that takes. Sure. So. I mean, that, uh, the patchwork that you speak of is what is sort of indicative of after school and summer programs. And part of that is that we receive a variety of funding streams and they come and go, there's lots of ebbs and flows. And even with a federal investment, they usually um, is a fight every year to just reauthorize um, investments in after school and summer programs as it also for summer programs in terms of you know SNAP dollars or TANF dollars to support youth and families. So that continues to be, which is why I brought up the struggle in terms of collective versus you know, private good, because that debate plays out in how we fund and what streams are available. Um, I would say that you know, there's not sort of one city that has it perfectly right, because there are obviously ebbs of flows in terms of their funding, their leadership. Um, but you know, the first thing that came to mind is the work that Boston has done, that Providence, Rhode Island have done. Um, and we also see in terms of our community schools work uh, that we see some of those stronger partnerships and uh, attention to access, whether it's in Oakland, California, or it's in Portland, uh, Multnomah County in Oregon. So there are places where they're really thinking intentionally systemically, but I think it's, uh, you know, I can't say that there is one city that has sort of free after school and summer for everyone. <laughs> But I think what is making a difference is that people are really engaging in those meaningful, par sustained partnerships across multiple stakeholders and really engaging their local governments, their um, private dollars, their schools, because when it comes to after-school summer, it really is the kind of complex system that continues to move and invest and continues to value access and opportunity quality that's going to get us there. And so it's one of those not really, uh, you know, sexy answers that's like you did this and then this happened. A lot of these cities who have been doing this meaningful work have taken decades to engage in this work and it's taken a lot of ebbs and flows because we know how it is in terms of um, finding a champion, uh, you know, uh, making your systems politician proof and all the other pieces they have to go into building a system. Um, but those are some cities that just come to mind to kind of look into how they have systemically created the structure and what is in their sort of city statutes um, that is also helping to provide that and then what are some of the funding allocations. And I would say, again, to go to the 
uh, statewide after-school networks. Uh, it's a website that links to all the networks across the country. Wallace Foundation has done a lot of work in terms of city systems. So the National League of Cities has done a lot of work and has highlighted a lot of practices around the country in terms of what mayors are doing and what the system, uh, city level systems are doing to support after school summer. So I encourage you to also turn to them because they are gonna have sort of the latest examples in this ongoing work. Thank you for coming today and sharing your knowledge with us. I just would like to know if uh, <laughs> any of the students that are attending, and thank you so much for coming today. I, I hope you've enjoyed your experience. Would maybe one or two students just give us a little thought, short answer about why you think after school programming is important and how it's impacted you? Absolutely, I would love to hear that too. It impacted me on my grades. It helped me get uh, my grades better because it wasn't that good at the beginning of the school year. Now I got B's and A's, and it helped me with my basketball too. <laughs> um. After school programs to me are important because like it exposes you to like more things that you don't see on a regular day in at school. And um it impacted me on my grades and um I just told my counselor that like because our program open doors, like I haven't really seen a lot of places downtown, but since I've been in open doors, I've seen a lot of places that I haven't seen. It was mentioned in the beginning how your background motivated you to uh, get involved in the things you've done. Mm -hmm. Could you go a little more into that, please? In terms of my experience as an immigrant? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, my personal story is that I came here at age 13. I did not speak a lick of English. Um, and there was nobody in my school that spoke my native language. And nobody knew how to, to communicate with me. And um, I'm <clears throat> years old, and it's before, <laughs> it's before internet, before iPads, or anything like that. And so I had this old dictionary, which is why I wrote this piece, Dictionary Girl. But um, I had this amazing teacher, John Scripture, who taught comparative religions, kid you not. Dr. Scripture teaches compared to religions. Um, but he was an amazing teacher because uh, he saw something in me um, and he invited me to come over after school one day and help paint homecoming banners because painting banners did not require language. Um, and so he would point to the can color and say, right there, paint this. And so I did. And I had no idea what a homecoming was. I don't have where I come from, but I did that. And then he would say, how about you come and join us for the, our student government association and help us pick out some decorations for our school dance. And I was like, okay, so I had a catalog, I can just point to things. Um, and so that's how it started. So it started really a, a teacher who saw something in me and helped me get um, really involved in student government. And a year later, 
I found myself testifying before a Maryland Senate representing students of Maryland, representing how we felt about a particular bill. And I remember sweating through my suit and going like, okay, if I just pronounce the speech, I'm good to go. And then they said, okay, now we're gonna have Q&A. And I went, oh my God, I don't speak English, what I'm gonna do? Um, but I think one thing that it's, it was clear from my personal experience, but then it's also backed by research, because I don't wanna say like, oh, because I had this experience, this is how it is. But there is research to show that you know, after school can really be a gateway into learning and engagement in school. And it can also be a way to create a safe space for those who have experienced trauma, who those who are trying to find out their sense of belonging. So after school is both a learning and engagement space, but it's also really, this is why I say it's such an important piece, and I'm so glad there's a lot of research and evidence to back up my own personal feelings. Um, it's really a, a sanctuary where you can feel really comfortable and explore, but you can also learn. And it ties back to your schooling. And this is why it's so important to not shortchange that time and that space as an important catalyst for youth engagement. I mean, as you hear from youth, and we hear this across the country, you know, schools who have meaningful school family community partnerships are seeing their attendance go up, grades go up, um, engagement, uh, focus on career, um, you know, students feel the sense of agency and voice and empowerment. It, it, that's not by accident, it's very intentional. And it's intentional because there's this deep investment in partnerships, um, and, but we have to keep that at the forefront. Hi, my name is yes. Jason Williams, and I'm the founder of Get With The Program. Um, and so what are some of the, the best practices that you witnessed or research in aligning formal education with non-formal education and addressing uh, learning needs of kids. So, because one of the issues that I've um, experienced in working with schools is that we'll try to align our, um, our after-school program. And we work in the STEM space, and so we'll try to align it with whatever they're learning in class and incorporate that into our um, after-school program. But also found that, you know, some schools and other organizations we work with, you know, tend to operate in silos, and so what is some, um, you know, like best practices that you witness as far as like um, engaging them and, you know, aligning uh, with what they're learning in school, in the after school and out of school space. So I would actually answer this by focusing more on the structural piece because it's really the adult behaviors and how we set up these partnerships that can either create those opportunities for alignment or create those barriers and walls that tend to exist between school um, and community providers and partners generally. So um, Gil Noem from Harvard University has this great um, kind of spectrum of what does it mean to align and engage. And so the, the lowest common denominator is that a classroom teacher says, yeah, you can have my classroom after I leave for the day. So that's not partnership, that's sort of shared space use at the very best. The other is that we agree to partner around some common goals. Well, that means I'll do this, you do this, but we'll come and talk to make sure that we're still, that you're still doing X and I'm still doing Y. That's kind of a partnership, but it's still not fully aligned. So it's really about making those collaborative partnerships and integrating school and families, what they're, and school and community partners, what both entities sit together and co-create what is the shared vision they have for the learning proposition um, for the vision for their students. What are some of the goals? How those community partners can be integrated? 
In some instances, they can be integrated in the school day. Some instances, they can be integrated after. But it's really aligning those activities um, on one hand, but it's really more than that. It's really aligning your goals, your resources, how you view and value the paraprofessionals, the volunteers, the youth serving professionals there in your schools. That tends to make a difference. And I'll also bring um, here some of the work that we do in the Institute for Educational Leadership through a coalition for community schools around community schools and creating this also shared governance. So a lot of community schools have a community school coordinator whose job it is to be the link between school and community and to not only find resources, but really link and align them. It's a full-time job. Sometimes it's paid through United Way, sometimes school district, it really varies. But that's an investment, an intentional investment, that says that we really value school, family, community, and partnerships. It's not something to say when check off and say, yep, we're doing this. But we're really thinking through what does this mean. And then the shared governance. That you have teachers and parents and young people and community folks, um, community partners at the table thinking together through instructional practices and through, through pedagogy in terms of what does it mean and what we're providing and how and how we're funding. So there's not sort of a magic practice as it is really a set of governance structures and systems and partnership alignment that takes, the play, uh, takes place. And so it's sort of building the MOU but going above it. It's really creating, co-creating an MOU and then sticking with it and revisiting it but also re for really re redesigning the governance structures of how you communicate with communities. Because you're right, so many schools become this fortress and you're lucky if you have access to the use of space. And sometimes, I mean, schools themselves often don't know who are all the community partners and there has to be mutual trust. And schools themselves are under a lot of pressure in terms of all the accountability measures that they have to align. So it's also understanding that there's not sort of a good guy, bad guy <laughs> situation here. It's really that everybody's trying to do their best in the interest of children, but there are some systemic issues that can be addressed in a way that actually propels their partnerships and the work forward. Uh, I run a charitable foundation and we have invested substantially in the neighborhood that we, that we are located in in um, investing in after school time and in connecting with schools. The frustration that we see is a continual um, learning gap and a continual inability to show um, literacy gains. And so I just wonder what the capacity that after school time um, programs have to be able to address that. Is your program focused on literacy? <laughs> Um, one of the things that it is, is growing, but it needs more investment, is really that capacity building piece. So we have now across the country, as part of some of the after school networks, there's more technical assistance and a lot of professional development. But professional development is in pockets. Um, the National After School Association does a wonderful job in providing opportunities for learning and professional development. They've developed the core competencies and skills for youth serving professionals. They kind of guide the trajectory of how you advance your own skills in this profession. But I would argue that we have to see more consistent investment on the district level, city, municipality level to provide access to some of those professional development opportunities. Uh, we know a lot more now what does it take to build capacity of those who are working after school in summer programs. 
um, and we also know the trajectory. However, one of the challenges that we see when we see variable quality, um, at times it's also related to turnover because we still don't recognize this as a field. We do within ourselves. Um, we also don't uh, recognize youth serving professionals as a profession. And so that often follows lack of resources and ongoing supports, both pre and in service, to continue to invest in the people and the adults who are actually working with children. And they equally need access to professional development and ongoing professional uh, support so they can enhance their own skills. Oftentimes, and this continues to be true in many areas, is that after school and summer programs are seen something that we volunteer in or something that is a holding until we get a better job, or at least that's how sometimes expressed, right? Or that we are teachers and we need to make a little bit of extra money and as soon as something else opens up, we'll go there. And the reason that's so transient is because again, while we have, um, the, while we have the profession and the standards, it's not always uniform. The great news is that if you look at the National After School Associations, they have done a great survey that shows that actually those who work in after school field are committed to the after-school field, and the growing number of people actually see this as their calling, as their career. They're also really well-educated. Um, I don't want to misquote the statistics, but uh, somewhere over a third or so have a master's degree. So our view of what after-school time providers are and who the people are has also changed quite substantially. And so there's a great opportunity to build on that momentum to create avenues for resources. But I think some of the variability in quality is often characteristic of whether that program has access to build the capacity of the adults and those who are volunteering in the room to provide the quality uh, necessary and whether they have access to also resources and instruments and tools to help enhance their practice. And so we often focus on what youth need and what outcomes we want, but we seldom actually pay attention of how do we help to shape and change the adult behaviors and cultures and that really involves heavily investing in the adults in the room and make sure that they themselves are lifelong learners who are also building their skills and capacities and competencies as they continue to improve their own practices. And so that's the part in charge that I also encourage those of you who are funders in the room to also continue to pay attention to, in addition to the demand that we do know exists, which is around making sure there's enough opportunities, slots, programs for the youth who want access to a particular program have. So it's not an either or, it's in, in this field, it's always and, <laughs> and both. Good, good afternoon. Um, I'm gonna date myself a little bit. Um, when I was in high school about 100 years ago and I was involved <laughs> in the debate society, I remember our faculty advisor saying several times that the debate club and other after school uh, activities were basically the stepchildren and uh, it's, in other words, that the athletic department got all the funding and we were, we were the ones going out selling chocolate bars and raffle tickets and things like that. At least with regard to public schools, do we still, still see these kind of disparities? Uh, because I also remember, as I said, I went to school in Philadelphia and, and, and I remember uh, at some point when I was in high school, they, they were gonna cut all the after school programs except for athletics. And then there was, you know, there was some what of an outcry, and the funding was restored. So you sort of have athletics as a sacred cow. Is that still the case, basically, with public school programs? Is there still any kind of tension there between athletics and non-athletics? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I'm not sure I have. Uh, yeah. 
That's true. Um, with athletics, I think we still, in some ways, privilege that by tradition, but it's not always accessible and free. As a woman in front of me just mentioned, in terms of fees and equipment and all of those costs, um, I think we're definitely seeing more of interest in STEM and STEAM, which is STEM with arts, um, and some of those investments. But the question is, are we doing this in pockets, or are we really systemically investing in after school and summer programs? And sort of this goes back to our value proposition of what is in our sort of public discourse. What do we value as education? What do we value as learning? Um, do we value access and opportunity if we're home and when? Um, and some of those questions we have to, I think, grapple both as educators and youth-serving professionals, um, uh, healthcare providers, and anyone else who is really shaping and involved in direct service of children and young people. Uh, but it's also charged for our policymakers, both with a little p and a little big p in terms of policy, of are we, um, what is, again, our, our goals and our impact that we want to have? And then how do we really get there? And part of it is really investing in um, learning frame versus investing in the uh, sort of those silos of, well, we'll invest in math and X will happen in science. It's, we have to invest in all of it in a very holistic way. And that's something we're seeing now, these conversations again, um, especially with um, ESSA debates around Every Children's Deceived Act, we're starting to see a little more conversation about how do we measure beyond reading and math, how do we start to pay attention to the whole child? But I would say that those conversations cubs ebbs and flow. And so when we are in that conversation again as a country, how do we continue to advance that agenda versus have circular conversations that lead us back to the path of silos and barriers and disinvestments? I'm Raj Agarwal, and I'm a retired educator. And I have a, uh, first of all, thank you for your very thought-provoking presentation. Uh, give me so many questions, Rise. And, and so one of my questions, which is somewhat tactical and not as policy-oriented as your address has been, is what is and what can be the role of free public libraries in after-school and weekend programs? Well, libraries are critical partner. I mean, for many communities, that is a, a, an anchor institution. Um, That's true for, uh, all over the country, but specifically in the rural and urban areas. We don't have other resources. I mean, public libraries have always played the critical role as community anchors. Uh, we see this in terms of the rural public libraries in providing access to digital technology. And since we still have digital deserts, even though we all think that everybody's connected, majority of young people, especially in high poverty areas, are not when they go home, and yet all the homework is digital. So we have that digital gap, and the libraries play a critical role. Libraries also play a critical role in terms of dual generational, sometimes triple uh, generation training, whether it's around literacy, whether it's access to resources and training. Um, we also know, as um, Dr. Moran knows, when uh, I was invited to speak here a couple of years ago around uh, social services, when Cleveland shut down because of the cold temperatures, the question was, how do you get food um, to youth? And where would you find youth when schools are closed? They were all in the libraries. Because this is where they go to do homework. This is where they go to socialize. And this is also a place where a lot of service delivery is happening, including meals. 
And so we have to really think about some of these anchor institutions as critical partners to learning. And I think investing in our libraries, we often think about libraries at least um, from the perspective of books and digital technologies and how do we you know, bring libraries in 21st century and what does it mean for catalogs, what does it mean in terms of access uh, to the resources. That's not sort of the main question when we talk about issues around equity. That is an important question, um, but it's, you know, as we talk about the learning frame, it's less about the what, because now with smartphones and in terms of school tablets, we can access to the what in terms of the knowledge. It's the why and the how that we're still struggling with when we talk about educational learning. So our libraries are, I still see them as is true for museums and many other um, institutions, or parks and recreation, as anchors that really serve a pivotal role in the lives of children, not just in terms of activities, but also that's sometimes the only place where they eat. It's sometimes the only place where they get access to internet. It's the only place where their uh, parents can have access to services and supports. So that's the other public institution that we cannot forget in terms of investment. Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a forum with Dr. Helen Jank Malone, the Director of Instructional Advancement and Education Policy and the National Director of the Education Policy Fellowship Program at the Institute for Educational Leadership. Thank you, Dr. Jank Malone. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.